encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, as we reflect on the truth that the incarnation reveals to us God's revelation in human form. The incarnation reveals to us God's revelation in human form. We've been reflecting on the incarnation this Christmas season. We have looked together that, uh, to the truth that the incarnation enables our sanctification. Uh, last week we saw from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the incarnation reveals to us the miraculous. This coming Sunday we'll look together to the truth that the incarnation brings to us God's salvation. And then Christmas Eve night we'll look together to the truth that the incarnation reveals to us the truthfulness of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the first part of verse 2 today is a text that you'll be familiar with. It's a text that, that you know. In fact, we just finished up studying the book of Hebrews together, and you might remember this text of Scripture as it serves this opening paragraph, verses 1 through 4, serve in some ways as uh, the, the entire communication of what he's going to say to us in the book of, of Hebrews. He's going to speak to us about this son, this the superiority of this son. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And here, the writer of Hebrews begins with this high Christological passage that communicates to us a truth about God's revelation. There are four primary Christological passages of Scripture in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 and following, and then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we are going to climb this Christological mountain this morning and see what it has to say to us in terms of God's revelation. As we see in this passage of Scripture, the author of Hebrews is going to juxtapose for us these two revelations. There was a time in which God has spoken, spoken to the fathers, and how did he speak to the fathers? He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But God didn't just speak in the past. God has spoken now, and there's a sense of finality in this speaking. And how did God speak now? He has spoken to us by his son. And what we learn as we think on Christ's revelation, Jesus is not a new revelation. Jesus is not an unexpected revelation. Jesus is not a revelation that is different than the revelation that God has been given in that all the revelation God has given is indeed the Word of God. What Jesus communicates to you and me is no greater, than the, no greater the Word of God than what Moses revealed to you and me through the prophets. What Jesus communicates to you and me through his life, through his 
death, through his burial, through his resurrection, is no greater the word of God than the words given to us in Proverbs. Yet, the revelation given to you and me through the person of Jesus is unique in its communication. Unique in that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's marvel together as we read this text of Scripture that the incarnation brings to us God's revelation in human form. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. How did God speak? He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. We began this look at the revelation of God as the writer of Hebrews gives it to us. He shows us first that God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. This is the writer of Hebrews saying to you and me that God spoke to the Old Testament saints in a very specific way. How did God speak to the Old Testament saints? Or as he says here, to the fathers, how did he speak to them? He spoke to them through or by the prophets. We can look to numerous passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, and there we will read the following and the word of the Lord came. Or Isaiah speaks, he, he writes and he tells us the word of the Lord. We see this word of God spoken in the Old Testament and every one of its reflections to us, particularly, for example, about the Son of God, Jesus. The Old Testament, whether in the, the Pentateuch, whether in the prophets or the Psalms, clearly speaks to you and me, revealing the person of Christ, the Messiah. Moses would begin this journey for you and me in the writings in the early beginning, early pages of the book of Genesis. Listen to these words, a promise that we hear concerning the Messiah. This is the prophet speaking to you and me the word of the Lord. As God is giving to Adam and Eve their consequences for their sins, we read these words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We understand these words to be the first mention of the gospel of Christ, the first mention of a promise of, of a seed of the woman who will function in a very specific way. The seed of the serpent here is going to strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of Satan. How do we see that? Prophetic word fulfilled, we see that fulfilled 
and the life of Christ on the cross. See, Satan thought he had gained the victory by striking at the hill of Jesus. He thought he had conquered God's Messiah. But what does Jesus prove for, prove for you and me through his cross experience and his resurrection? Jesus defeats, crushes the head of the serpent. He crushes death. He shows us his power over the grave. The writings speak to you and me concerning the person of Christ. But it's not just the writings. We go to the Psalms, and there the Psalms speak for you and me of this Messiah that we come. Psalm 2 or Psalm 22. Here, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. We know from the New Testament that these words are placed directly into the mouth of whom? Jesus, when? When he's on the cross. See, friends, the Psalms point us forward. The Psalms speak to us concerning the Word of God. They point you and me to God's revelation. They are in and of themselves the very words of God pointing us toward this promised Messiah. But not only do the writings and the Psalms, but the prophets point us toward the hope that will come in the person of Messiah, in the person of Christ. And we have marveled at a number of those passages of Scripture as we have studied together in Sunday school, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and we heard read this morning Micah, and we've already seen several passages from Isaiah concerning who this promised Messiah would be. But hear these words again from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this passages that speak in a prophetic way to the coming of the Messiah, but it is true that the entirety of the Old Testament, it doesn't matter, friend, what passage you turn to. It doesn't matter in what section you turn to. The totality of every single word in the Old Testament is literally the Word of God. Notice the writer of Hebrews at many times and in many ways. Over the course of centuries, God has not left his people without a revelation. God has not left his people without communication from him. And how did he do it? The Bible says, notice, God spoke. The words of the Old Testament that you and I read are literally the words 
of God spoken, how? To our fathers through an instrument. What was the instrument of God's revelation in the Old Testament? The prophets. You even hear the writers of the New Testament pick up on this theme outside of the writer of Hebrews. Listen to Matthew as Matthew records the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reflecting upon what the angel had said to Joseph and Mary concerning her pregnancy, the revelation that you will bear a son and that you shall call his name Jesus, for he himself will save his people from, them, from their sins. Listen to what Matthew recorded. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. God is a speaking God. And what does that speech of God reveal for you and me? It reveals his very character and his nature. What does that speech communicate to me and you? That speech communicates to you and me the intimacy of God our Father, that God desires that you and I might know him. This is one of the reasons why God has spoken. Friend, if God had not spoken, if God had not revealed, you and I today would not know him. We would be like the speaker in Acts. We would be groping around in darkness. But thanks be to God that this one who is creator, sustainer, and giver of life is also a father who desires relationship with his children, with his creation. And part of that relationship is the fact that he has spoken to you and me. How did he speak? By the prophets. Friends, rejoice in the communication of God in the Old Testament. Trust it. Believe it. Rely upon it as fully, completely, totally the Word of God. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but notice verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but notice verse 2, he now speaks to us through Christ. But notice the designation that he gives to Christ here in this passage of Scripture. He gives the designation of Christ as a son. And notice back in verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The prophets are plural. And in the Greek New Testament, the prophets carry the article. It is, it is definite. The prophets. But here with Jesus, it's singular. And lacking the article, highlighting a number of things semantically, but also theologically for you and for me. God has spoken to you and me by one who is by his very nature and character, as Dr. David Allen would say, a son. See, there is a difference 
between these two revelations. There is a difference between the spoken word of God by the prophets and the spoken word of God that is through a son or in a son. The difference is not in the measure of the validity of the communication. The difference is not in the truthfulness of the communication. As I stated a few moments ago, what Jesus speaks is indeed the word of God. What Isaiah speaks is indeed the word of God. And what Jesus has spoken and, what, and the way in which Jesus has acted is no more the word of God than what Isaiah has given to us. They are equal in that way. Equally the word of God. But notice the relationship. He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by one who is by his very nature and character a son. The difference comes in the designation of who Jesus is. Jesus is in relationship to the Father in a different category than what the prophets are in relationship to the Father. Pastor, what does this text of Scripture mean that Jesus is a son? Pastor Travis, last night for the youth uh, Christmas party, read to them a Christmas story from Arius. Arius is uh, one that we have to go all the way back to the 300s to see. He, he was one that tried to deny the very deity of, of Jesus as, as God. And in some ways, various expressions of Arianism today would be modern-day Mormons or more specifically Jehovah Witnesses. So are we to see Jesus as a son? Does this negate the fact that Jesus himself is indeed God? And of course, the writer of Hebrews is not denying in any, any measurable way or means the very deity of Christ. For an understanding of what the writer of Hebrews is doing with this designation of son, our journey must begin where it began here in chapter 1. Verse 1, with the revelation of God in the Old Testament. How do we understand this concept of Son of God in an Old Testament frame? Well, there are three ways in which this designation, Son of God, was used in the Old Testament. It was, it was used, for example, for the people of God collectively. It was used in a reference to um, angelic beings, for example. So there's a truth in which the sons of God are, are, from an Old Testament standpoint, you and me. We are the sons of God. We are the children of God. But it was also used of kings. Journey with me for just a moment back to one of those revelations of God to his people in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
verse 14. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 14. And I'd like to highlight for us that this designation of Jesus as son captures rightly for you and me the truth that Jesus is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. Second Samuel chapter seven, let's begin reading in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a what? And he shall be to me a, a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But by my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, in your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now notice what Nathan is saying to David as it relates to this Davidic kingship, this Davidic kingdom. God is going to relate to David as one who is a what? Father. It demonstrates God's authority. But David is going to relate to God as one who is a son. It communicates the closeness between father and, and son. It communicates Heirship, that what the father has, so does the son have. And we know the revelation of the Old Testament. Did David live forever? No. But there was a promise from God that upon the throne of David would be one from the house of David who would rule forever. In Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, Psalm 110 being the primary text upon which the author of Hebrews constructs his narrative, also point us forward to this truth that there was this prophetic utterance that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse, verse 14, that upon the throne of David would be one who would reign forever. And in this way we come to Hebrews. And Hebrews, in this way, is showing for us that Jesus is ultimately the prophetic fulfillment of what God the Father spoke through, through Nathaniel, uh, through, through uh, Nathan to David. That Jesus would be the one who would reign upon the throne of David forever. He would be the one that is to the Father a son. 
It speaks of Jesus's eternal connection to the Father. But to rightly get the concept of son in the context of this passage of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews would go on to tell us in these seven statements that follow the conclusion of verse 2 down through verse 4. And these statements concerning the son point us to the truth that the son is indeed full deity with the Father. Listen at how the author of Hebrews speaks of this Son. He is one who has been appointed the heir to all things. The Son is one through whom also God has created what? The world. So whoever this Son is, whatever role, whatever function this Son has, the writer of Hebrews tells us from the very beginning that this Son is one who has existed throughout eternity with the Father. And we know from John chapter 1 that there has never been a moment in which the Father existed without the Son. The Father and the Son have always coexisted with one another. The Son has been appointed heir of all things. He's going to receive everything that the Father has. He's not only going to receive everything the Father has, he is going to execute the Father's will in creation. He created the world. He, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, friends, if you want to see God Look to Jesus. Jesus is exactly what the Father wanted to say to you and me. And he upholds the universe, how? By the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, in this text of Scripture, functions as a son with the same authority, with the same power, with the same acts as God the Father. We know from the Old Testament that the Father is one who does what he creates. We learn here that Jesus also creates. We learn from the reading of the Old Testament that God is one who saves. According to the Old Testament, there is only one who saves. Who is that one? God the Father. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the author of Hebrews communicating for us in that passage of Scripture? Jesus, through his life, has accomplished salvation. He has accomplished redemption for his people. Jesus, here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is functioning in the exact same way as the Father. This son, this designation, this title, son, goes back for us to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and points us forward 
to who Jesus would be in his deity. The title, Son of God, is not a title that designates Jesus as one who was born from the Father, or one who did not exist until the Father begot him. This son, this title, Son of God, designates his deity, but it also designates his humanity. The writer of Hebrews, in numerous times throughout this book, is going to refer to Jesus as the Son of God, and in many examples, highlighting his humanity. In fact, notice just chapter 2 of Hebrews. Immediately, using this phrase of Jesus as the Son of God, he's going to highlight for you and me Jesus' humanity. Chapter 2, verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might do what? Taste death for everyone. Can God die, friends? I appreciate all the children. They're all looking at me saying, and all the adults are looking at me saying, is this a trick question? No, God cannot die. If God dies, he ceases to be God. So Jesus must be human. The writer of Hebrews mentions, he captures for us the humanity of Jesus. He had to taste death for everyone. But look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made a little lower, or he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus in his humanity is a helper to you and me. How is he a helper to you and me? Primarily, he's a helper to you and me. The writer says in that he empathizes with us. He understands our struggles. But friends, in his humanity, the greatest help that Jesus could ever provide is accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, in his humanity, became sin. For the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took upon the sins of the world so that we might take upon his righteousness. And notice in chapter 4 of verse Hebrews, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God... Wait a minute, verse 14. Sorry, not verse 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, notice his title again. The what? Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The writer of Hebrews is going to communicate for us this title, Son of God, that we see here beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, to highlight for you and me the fact that Jesus is simultaneously human and deity. He is 100% God and yet at the same time 100% man. We read several designations here in the book of Hebrews. Ultimately, this title, Son, is going to communicate for you and me that Jesus is one who is willing to walk in obedience to the Father. It designates his willingness to submit himself, even though he's fully God, to the will of the Father. And where did that obedience begin, friends? It began in Jesus' incarnation, that Jesus would humble himself. As Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, that he would take on the form of mankind, that he would become like you and me. Jesus, as God had at his possession, all the angels of heaven who would serve him, carry out his commands, Jesus would leave behind the pleasure of being seated at the right hand of the Father. And he would come to this place, earth, and he would incarnate himself among a people that would reject him, that would revile against him, that would hate him, that would oppose him, that would ultimately lead to the greatest of human agony, death on a cross. But friends, you and I would not have that revelation of God apart from the incarnation of Christ. That incarnation of Christ brings close to you and me God and Jesus with crystal clear clarity shows us exactly who the Father is. The prophets spoke the word of God Jesus is the Word of God. Have you trusted in that revelation today, friend? Have you hoped in that revelation? Have you given your life to that revelation? The Bible tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The greatest problem of humanity is that you and I have sinned against a holy God. We have disobeyed the word of God. 
and in that, disobe- in that, in that disobedience, we are rebellious creatures of God. And our act, our treachery, our being traitors demands a verdict. And that verdict against our lives is death, separation from God. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in God's revelation of Jesus, of God's revelation in human form, you this morning stand opposed to this almighty maker of the heavens and the earth. You this morning stand in opposition to this God. And the story of the incarnation is not good news for you. The story of incarnation is condemnation for you. For Jesus is not only a babe in a manger, he is a ruling, conquering king and a judge who will one day rightly judge your life and my life. But the narrative of that incarnation is good news for all who by faith would trust in Jesus. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you hope this morning in Christ? Would you trust in Jesus as God's full, complete, total, communication and revelation to you and me of who ultimately God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this communication of truth. Jesus is indeed the Son of God, one who is fully and totally God and yet fully and totally man. the full revelation of who God is to us. We marvel this morning, God, at what you have accomplished in the incarnation of Christ. We thank you that that communication reveals to us that truth seen and highlighted in John, for God so loved the world. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and thank God for his revelation? Would you thank God that he's given us that revelation in the Old Testament? Would you thank God this morning that he's given us that revelation through Christ? Would you thank God this morning that that revelation began in the incarnation? Would you thank Christ this morning that he was willing to humble himself? Would you thank the Spirit that he has taken the truth of God's revelation in Christ and applied it to your heart? Would you ask him this morning to increase your love and your devotion 
for Christ and what he's accomplished. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, would you trust in Christ now? The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. It's our hope that this Christmas season you would hear the good news of what Christ has done on your behalf and that you would believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing. And then after singing, we're going to celebrate what Christ has accomplished through through observing the Lord's Supper. As we stand to sing in just a few moments, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, may we encourage you to to ask someone seated around you, for there are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But you can also come forward as myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front, and we'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us just to pray with you. That your love and affection for Christ might be increased as we marvel at what God has done through Christ through this text of Scripture today, we would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.